kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. We're continuing in Acts chapter 12, 25 through 13, 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. In our last study, Saul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, evidently with two young aspiring evangelists in tow, Titus and John Mark. Luke will say nothing of Titus in the book of Acts, so we will not comment on him further. But there will be quite a bit to say about John Mark in subsequent chapters of Acts, some of it difficult and troublesome. For now, things are good, and he's beginning his training as a servant of the Lord. Luke informs that Saul and Barnabas joined other prophets and teachers as members of the congregation at Antioch. And in verse 2, we pick up with the work they were doing there. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. The phrase, they ministered to the Lord, is a little challenging and has been treated differently by several commentators and scholars over the years. The word translated ministered is liturgio, from which our word liturgy is derived, and it's used in the Septuagint and in the New Testament to refer to the work of priests and Levites in the temple. So some translations use the word worship here. However, the same term is also used in Philippians 2 and verse 30, to describe the work of supplying the needs of another person. It seems best to take the statement in this context generally as a reference to the work of the prophets and teachers in giving the local body what they needed to grow and to be strong. Yet because of the note that the ones doing this work were prophets and teachers, it seems best to take the work here as something spiritual and probably based around the teaching in the assemblies and from house to house. The work was directed toward their brethren, but Jesus said what we do for his people we do for him. So Luke can call it ministering to the Lord. Luke also says they were fasting. Up until now, there has not been a particular mention of the role of fasting in the Christian life in Luke's portrayal of things. He's put a great deal of emphasis on prayer, which is frequently mentioned in connection with fasting. But here, fasting is mentioned as a regular part of the Christian life and program, and that's worth noting. Jesus anticipated that fasting would be something his people did in his kingdom, Matthew 6.16, and especially when he was not physically present with his people, Luke 5.35. Fasting, which refers to a self-imposed deprivation, usually of food, but sometimes of other things like sexual relations or the pleasures of life, is called by Bible writers an affliction of the soul. Fasting is often associated with repentance, but it can also be a way of intensifying one's focus and fervency in prayer. 
In Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 7, the Lord said that the fast he chooses or accepts from his people is the one in which the people not only deprive themselves of certain pleasures, but they use their energies and abilities to help those who are needy and suffering. So what we see here is God's preferred method of fasting being acted out in the primitive church. These prophets and teachers were depriving themselves and focusing their time and energies on supplying the spiritual needs of others in the body of Christ. There's not much regulation in the New Testament about Christian fasting other than the fact that Jesus warns it should not be allowed to become an instrument of pride and self-aggrandizement. When you couple that point with this description in Acts 13, we could reach this conclusion. In Christian fasting, the observation that fasting is going on should not arise from any kind of ceremony pointing to it or from the beleaguered appearance of the men or women doing it. In fact, Jesus says we should make efforts to present ourselves in a way that people would be surprised to learn we were fasting by our appearance alone. But rather, Christian fasting should be discernible by outsiders from the observation that these people are clearly depriving themselves because they're spending so much time and energy serving others. These activities exemplify a group of men whose hearts are fully set on the growth of the kingdom of God. So it's not surprising to see that their work precipitated a special move of God among them. Luke says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. It is when God's people are doing work that God gives his people more work to do. He that is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. To him who has, more will be given. But to him who does not have even what he has shall be taken away. But I want to spend some time on this phrase, the Holy Spirit said. I'm going to say something that might sound very alarming to many people in the world today who consider themselves followers of Jesus. In my 20 years as a Christian, I have never heard the Holy Spirit or Jesus or God the Father or an angel speak to me. If I have, I'm utterly ignorant of it. I did not know and I still do not know that it was one of them. Frankly, I've never had an unusual experience that I might even suppose could have been a case of direct divine communication. I must say that raises some significant questions for me. I'm not necessarily so troubled when one of my neighbors claims to have an experience that I've never had. I don't want to sound overly cynical, but I don't always trust that my neighbors tell the truth or are able to accurately interpret the experiences that they do have. So when some preacher on television claims that God speaks to him, I'm personally inclined not to believe it, especially when the things God allegedly said to him are contrary to the Bible or very out of sorts with the character of God as it is revealed in the Bible. I realize that might sound very harsh and judgmental to some people. I don't mean to be, but the truth is that almost every religion in the world has men and women who claim to be prophets and to have strange, supernatural, and paranormal experiences. And John the Apostle warned us in 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Someone may chafe at the idea that I'm discounting the testimony of millions of people who call themselves Christians, but I simply respond that they discount the testimony of millions of people who call themselves Mormons or Muslims or Hindus or Spiritists and claim their own remarkable experiences. The truth is, 
we have a responsibility to test all things and hold fast to that which is proven good, but to abstain from evil in whatever form it takes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 22-23. And that admonition is contextually given in regard to alleged prophecies and messages from God. However, in this case, in Acts 13, we have an example of men who are unquestionably true Christians, they are real prophets, and the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Should I then expect that the Holy Spirit will speak to me? Should I be troubled by the fact that He hasn't? Should I be more open to the possibility that He's speaking to others today? How do we answer these questions? While this is an important matter that inescapably comes up as we examine the book of Acts, the book of Acts really itself does not answer the question directly or conclusively. We've already discussed at various times Paul's prophecy regarding the cessation of miraculous signs and revelations when that to which they were contributing was completed, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, And I know that's a controversial passage, and it's outside the scope of this study to give it all the treatment that it deserves, but I'll say that I am convinced at the present time that it anticipates the end of this specific kind of supernatural work in the church once the full body of the truth of Christ had been deposited in the Christian scripture by the apostles and prophets, that is, once the New Testament scriptures were completed and settled. And I believe that happened a long time ago. In fact, I believe it was finished with the ministry of John, the last of the twelve apostles to leave this world in death. Consequently, I have never been too much troubled by the fact that I have not heard the Holy Spirit speak to me directly. I've always believed that the Holy Spirit speaks to me through the Bible. A fair question, while we're here in Acts 13, however, is whether this account is supportive to my conclusions or troublesome against them. And I actually believe this is supportive. First, I would note that this kind of message from the Spirit has not been common even in the record of Acts so far. When the first disciples began to follow Jesus, they were not hearing the voice of the Spirit coming directly to each of them. Rather, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. Even here, the Spirit did not speak directly to the whole congregation, but to the prophets and teachers, and it's very likely he spoke to the group through one of the prophets, as we saw in the ministry of Agabus. This seems to be the regular way that the Spirit gave revelations to the church in those days. Of course, we saw the Spirit and an angel visit Philip the Evangelist and speak to him about the Ethiopian eunuch, but that brings up another matter. The occasions where the Spirit speaks directly in Acts seem to be very significant events in the historic progress of the kingdom of God regarding the evangelization of the Gentiles and outbreaking of the reign of Christ into all the nations. There is no evidence that the Spirit told Philip to go to Samaria. Seemingly, he went there by his own desire when he was driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. However, were it not for that revelation of the angel and spirit, it would have been virtually impossible that he should ever have encountered the eunuch much less had the gumption to preach to him and the providence to do so at just the moment when he was reading from Isaiah 53. But as we saw, that was an extraordinary event. It was a prophetic sign from God to forecast what was furthered by the conversion of Cornelius, which also required a special vision and direct revelation from God, and was now being propelled further still 
by the congregation in Antioch sending out Saul and Barnabas on the so-called missionary journey. So while we have occasions when the Spirit directly inserts himself into the lives and work of the believers with a special message, it is actually not so frequent as we might think. In the 16 or 17 years of church history that have so far elapsed since Pentecost in the Acts record, we've only seen two incidents rather than this one when the Spirit spoke directly without a prophet, if that is, in fact, what happened here. And all these occasions, including this one, had to do with the difficult issue of Gentile evangelism. So we're getting the sense that the Holy Spirit spoke only at junctures when his special intrusion was absolutely essential to the forward movement of God's redemptive plan for history. In Romans 1.13, we find, I think, an endorsement of this idea. Paul told the church at Rome that he often planned to come to them, but was hindered until that time. On this verse, Moses Lard made these insightful comments. To the will of Christ, Paul was bound as a servant, to the will of the Spirit as an apostle. For him, the Spirit determined two things, where he should go, what he should say, to which is to be added that it always empowered him to prove his mission divine. But at all other times, it left him to himself to act his part as he wished. That's from Lard's commentary on Romans. Well, in other words, there was a difference, even for Paul, between his normal evangelistic work and Christian service and his special apostolic work. Though it may appear to some readers that the Spirit was constantly directing Paul's life in this remarkable way, telling him in dreams and visions where he should and should not go and what he should and should not say, in truth, this was an extraordinary imposition into his life concerning his very special role in the eternal purposes of God. Aspects of Paul's Christian service such as did not concern his unique apostolic ministry were left to Paul's own will and judgment. This freedom to go about according to the dictates of wisdom is granted to all workers today. Therefore, when I consider the context of events like this one, I conclude that I should not expect extraordinary guidance from the Spirit I certainly trust that God in His providence is making ways for truth to be heard by honest hearts, and if we're obedient, then sooner or later it will happen. Perhaps through me, I pray God, at least on occasion, or perhaps through another. But when I want to know what I should do to please the Lord, when I want to walk and live according to His calling, I must turn to the Bible to hear God's voice. So on this occasion, what did the Spirit say? Continuing in verse 2. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This instruction was given to the congregation through its leaders. The instruction separate to me refers to a formal ordination or appointment to an office and work. In Acts chapters 1 and 6, we've already seen similar ordinations of church officers, including apostles and deacons. Here we have the ordination of Saul and Barnabas as missionaries, and the process is essentially the same. God was the elector. He chose who should do the work. There were facilitators and the prophets and teachers who received and passed on God's message. The candidates were, in this case, specifically identified by God. And in the next verse, we read about the ordination ritual. Then, Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. 
This would have taken place in the presence of the congregation, who would serve as witnesses to the fulfillment of God's will among them, although the rest of the congregation is not explicitly mentioned here. In later sections, we're going to find the whole church being gathered together to hear reports of the work, showing that they were very much involved in this procedure in the normal way. The work that Saul and Barnabas had been called into by the Spirit was a special missionary tour. In the end, there were going to be three in total recorded in the book of Acts, and they would receive guidance from time to time on these tours to make divinely strategized visits where they could proclaim the kingdom of God and preach the gospel to those who would in turn carry it throughout the whole world. In a very real sense, the work that Saul and Barnabas embarked on here is still having its residual impact throughout the earth to this day, every time a man or woman comes to faith in Jesus Christ. This was the formal transition of Christianity from a Jewish movement in and around Palestine to the global empire of the Son of God. There are certainly some principles for missionary work that may be taken from this scene that properly constitute a pattern for modern Christians to emulate. The local congregation was God's missionary society. They sent out these men, and those who were sent out retained a relationship with the sending church. We're not certain if the congregation gave them financial support. It's not mentioned, but it's possible. In fact, I think it's likely that they gave some. What is certain is that we find Saul and Barnabas coming back and sharing the results of their labor with an enthusiastic congregation that feels like co-operators in the mission. While the Spirit may not be giving directions for missions today, as he did then, we must remember that what made these men poised to share in God's mission to the world was their passionate, all-consuming devotion to the kingdom of God day to day at home. Where this passion exists, a congregation will be driven by its own heart to spread the kingdom as far as it can, and God will open the door and show the way. The kingdom is spreading, and God, who is gracious and full of mercy, has invited us to join in the work of its increase. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit TulsaChurchOfChrist.com From all the dark places of earth's heathen races Oh, see how the thick shadows fly The voice of salvation awakes every nation Come over and help us, they cry The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory, as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. 
The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.